Today, we're going to jump into the scriptures. At the end of John, we'll pick up at the, the day of the resurrection when Jesus was, um, when it was discovered that his body was gone from the tomb. And actually, even though we start that story on Easter with Mary finding that his body is gone, and then we kind of like jump into rejoice mode, he's alive. The truth is, there were still many hours where people were feeling very uncertain, not everyone believed yet that he had risen. So we're going to be looking at that time because it was a little bit of a, a crisis and a panic um, mode at that point. So as we ourselves are dealing with the coronavirus and feeling like our own lives are being upended, um, I think it's a good scripture to look at just for as, as a role model um, of a time of confusion and frustration and disorientation, which we all can relate to right now. And as we've been living in this new kind of life, um, I've been seeking wisdom and discernment from the Lord because my thoughts and emotions have been swinging and swaying. And I think we're all in that situation, trying to find some solid ground and some answers. Um, and there are two, two truths that I've been thinking about that I've discovered in the last few weeks that have been very helpful to me. So I want to share those with you today. And one of them is that um, we are on a journey back to a reunion with our Lord and we are making progress. Even when it doesn't feel like it, we're actually making progress. The journey began, of course, back in the garden when we were first, first were separated from God. Um, but ever since then, God has had a very intentional plan to have us come back together with him. The um, author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones, calls this God's rescue plan. And it's his never-ending, never-giving-up love for us. And that has caused him over the thousands of years to just slowly, progressively been um, pulling us back into him. It's like he's pursuing us in love all the time, whether we feel it or see it or not, it's happening. So even in the most bleak, difficult moments, this is true, and we can't stop the progress he's making. And then the second idea is a newer one to me that I've encountered in the last few weeks. Um, it's an idea that it's been true throughout time, but uh, in a time like this with coronavirus, it feels like it makes more sense. It, it's more um, applicable to our lives today. And I think it's, it's something that was true for the 12 disciples who we're going to focus on. And it was true for the Israelites far long ago, before the time of Jesus. So we're going to be looking at those, um, those two times with the 12 disciples and some of the Israelites. We're going to compare them to from prior in their history. But the idea that we're going to be looking at through the lens of is initiation. It's this idea that we are initiated by reality, by the hardships of reality that are around us. Uh, whether we like it or not, this is happening. And our world is being initiated by the reality of this global pandemic. So the um, person who has informed me of this idea of initiation is a Franciscan priest named Richard Rohr, who many years ago, 25 years ago, began studying initiation rites of cultures around the world. And he gleaned about five principles uh, or lessons that he feels like we can learn from initiation. So just to get your mind around the idea of initiation, think of some that we have in our own culture. So um, baptisms, confirmation, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, um, menstruation for women, childbirth, college fraternities, notorious for their <laughs> initiations, um, boot camp for the military, of course, then marriage, divorce, death, all of these things, they really they transition a person from one stage to another. 
And as a consequence, new perspectives are hopefully gained, wisdom is enhanced, um, per perhaps a new sense of identity or loyalty is cemented. So whatever the outcome is, the effects in the person's life are new. These are new uh, occurrences or new consequences. So um, for me, this idea of initiation really struck home because some of you know during Lent, which is 40 days long, I was really um, taken with this idea of, of spending 40 weeks, 40 days in, um, 40 days, not weeks, <laughs> in a time of trial, in a time of sacrifice. And we happen to be going through the coronavirus, which we still are, but we're experiencing this quarantine. And the origination of the word quarantine is from the Italian word quarantina, which means 40 days. So the goal during a quarantine is to purge and purify. The goal during Lent or any of the biblical uh, trials of 40 days or even 40 years, um, the, the hope was that during this time of testing and trial and pressure that the outcome would be restoration and renewal and new life. I was even thinking that um, gestation period for a baby is 40 weeks and after that the, the new life occurs. So before we get into the scriptures, we're going to look at John 20, um, but before we do that, I want to share with you Roar's five lessons that can be learned from initiation. And as, we're present, as I'm presenting them right now, they're really pared down and blunt and kind of harsh. Um, so just bear with me. I just want you to have them in mind as we, as we talk about this. Uh, and then at the end, we'll kind of tie it all together. So here are the lessons that, that Roar says we can learn from initiation. Number one, life is hard. Number two, you are not important. Number three, your life is not about you. Number four, you are not in control. And number five, you are going to die. So just jolly thoughts there. <laughs> but keep them in mind as we think about the 12 disciples and we um, look at John chapter 20. So as I said, usually we kind of stop and celebrate after Mary Magdalene encounters Jesus in the garden. But in truth, this whole chapter until Jesus appears to the group of disciples um, is really one of panic. Uh, so Mary's at the tomb. He's not there. Oh my gosh, his body's gone. And so she races back. She's running. There's a lot of running around here. She runs back and tells the guys, Peter and John, then like race. They're running and running and running. They find the empty tomb. They've already been in a state of total despair. Jesus is dead. What have they been doing with their lives for these last three years? He's gone, and now his body's gone, and they're going to be blamed for sure, right? So they go home. They're despondent. They go home. Mary lingers, and she has the shock and honor of encountering Jesus. She's the first one. It's this amazing experience. And she tells the disciples, but in Mark and Luke, we're told that they don't believe her. So they're still in this, like, state of crisis, and they lock themselves in a room, and they're sure that they're going to be in trouble. And uh, so, and I'm sure they're going through all kinds of feelings, emotions, thoughts, like, why did we give up our presumably, like, you know, stable lives three years ago to follow this guy who just shook things up and then died. And now we're going to probably be arrested and killed because his body's missing. So they're in a place where nothing makes sense. They feel alone, abandoned, foolish, and afraid of losing their lives. So in John, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, the scriptures tell us, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, 
Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So did you catch that? Jesus breathed on them. Jesus shared the Holy Spirit by breathing on his friends. It's kind of strange, but hopefully it's ringing some bells. Genesis 2, 7 says, God formed man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So this, this, there's significance in this breathing, this breath. And just prior to Jesus breathing on them, he declared something powerful. He said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. In his words and his actions, Jesus is both inviting and equipping his friends to join him in something much bigger than themselves, much bigger than anything they could have fathomed. So as he breathes the breath of God, the breath of life into his disciples, he's actually extending his fullness, his glory to them. He's inviting them into the mysterious rescue mission planned from the beginning of time. Luke 24, 45 says that during this interaction with Jesus, that Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So things are beginning to click. Things that he'd been talking about, telling them about for three years are finally oh, making sense. Things are falling into place. And a giant leap forward towards this reunification that God desires for us with him is occurring in these moments. In fact, the disciples, they didn't really understand it, but they were being radically initiated into the kingdom of God. And this initiation was a great exhibition of the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. It proved that life following Jesus would be hard, but so worth it. This initiation opened the disciples' eyes to the truth that their personal ambitions, for instance, maybe to sit on the right hand of Jesus as an earthly king, were silly in comparison to the larger mystery into which they were being invited. It revealed that life was not about them individually. Rather, it was about life, full life for everyone, life of an abundant and eternal variety. And they were fully about that life now. This initi initiation also revealed that the disciples were not the least bit in control, which was actually the perfect place, the perfect starting point for the relationship with the Holy Spirit. And lastly, this initiation through Jesus' defeat of death, removed the sting and, and uh, fear of death. Death would no longer be a deterrent. And as most of you know, in the end, it wasn't. Eleven of the twelve apostles died as martyrs for the sake of the gospel. So within this initiation, these young men were unable to control their situation or their suffering. Instead, the suffering actually handled them, and it transformed them. The only way they could come to a place of understanding what was happening on was what was happening to them was to go on this journey into a dark, confusing place. Uh, I love how Richard Rohr describes this dynamic. He says, "It seems that nothing less than some kind of pain will force us to release our grip on our small explanations and our self-serving illusions. Resurrection will always take care of itself whenever death." is trusted. 
It is the cross, the journey into the necessary night of which we must be convinced. And then resurrection is offered as a gift. New life, new understanding, new vigor sprouted within these disciples from what looked like absolute desolation. Filled with the breath of God, these new atoms represented hope for humanity. They progress humanity towards the goal of reunification with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now allow me to take us back 1,200 years or so from this incident to share something I stumbled upon while I was following an annual Bible reading plan. I was kind of blown away when I saw all this, and, and I'm sure there's even more to it than what, I've, what I'm going to share. So it's a parallel story to our dear, dear disciples. Um, and as you recall, Jesus had called his disciples by saying, follow me, follow me. They didn't know what they were being called to, but they did it. They followed him. Similarly, the Israelites had spent 40 years wandering the desert, following the Lord. They didn't really have much option. They were out there, and if they didn't follow him, they were going to die. He was their provider, so they were following him. Um, And the older generation that was wandering in the desert, they were the ones who'd been led out of Egypt, uh, and they began at that point an initiation of their own. They were led out, they were escaping captivity, and they were promised this new life on the other side. But their fear and lack of, God, of trust in God caused them to forfeit that new life. And they never got to enter the promised land. So the wandering for 40 years was a time of dying off, dying off, dying off. All these folks who didn't trust the Lord, they ended up dying in the desert because they didn't believe that there really was new life worth finishing the initiation process for. So um, I like how Paul kind of referred to this time as a reminder for newer Christians. In 1 Corinthians 10, 2 through 5, um, the message version puts it this way. Paul says, Remember our history, friends, and be warned. Our ancestors were led by the provid- provident providential cloud and taken miraculously through the sea. They went through the waters in a baptism like ours as Moses led them from enslaving death to salvation life. They all ate and drank identical food and drink, meals provided daily by God. They drank from the rock, God's fountain for them, that stayed with them wherever they went. And that rock was Christ. But just experiencing God's wonder and grace didn't seem to mean much. Most of them were defeated by temptation during the hard times in the desert, and God was not pleased. So as that generation died off, we then get to encounter the the younger generation in Joshua chapters 3 through 5. And these are the kids who grew up in the desert, kind of suffering the consequences of their parents' choice. Um, But fortunately, we see some progress in them. We see an increased uh, level of trust and partnership with God. We also get a little glimpse as to what's going to be offered to Jesus' disciples many generations later. So when we meet these Israelites, they're crossing the Jordan into the Promised Land. And unlike their their parents who followed a, a mighty but distant God, these younger Israelites were actually carrying God on their shoulders because he had chosen to come down closer to them and live in this little ark of the covenant, right? And they would carry it 
on these long poles on their shoulders. So here they are carrying God with them in a closer manner. And they're being led by Joshua, who shares his name, his Hebrew name, Yeshua, the Lord saves with Jesus. So here's Joshua leading the 12 tribes of Israel as they cross into new territory. And they had no idea what really awaited them. Similarly, Jesus, who had himself undergone the most excruciating initiation and had come through transformed, was leading 12 young men into new territory, this time into an invisible kingdom. They too did not really know what life in the new territory would look like. So as these young Israelites crossed the Jordan, the Levites step into the Jordan, and similarly to the Red Sea, the waters part as they're standing in the Jordan, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and the waters pile up to the north of them. And then the entire nation crosses over safely into the Promised Land. And then as soon as they've crossed into the Promised Land, they undergo a two-part initiation. And these are two things that apparently had not happened during the 40 years of wandering. First, all the men were circumcised. And second, the entire assembly celebrated the Passover. And then I don't want you to miss what happened next. Joshua 5, verses 11 and 12 say, The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Then in chapters 13 through 21, the land is divided up, with each tribe receiving an allotment as an inheritance, except for the Levites, because they served as the nation's priests, and they didn't receive land as an inheritance, because as Joshua 13.33 says, the Lord, the God of Israel, is the Levite's inheritance. Okay, so now hopefully you're going to see a slide with some side-by-side comparison to make this really clear for you. We're going to jump back to the 12 disciples. Um, They too were gathered for the Passover, led by their leader, Jesus. And um, they've had their Passover supper. And then Jesus says in John 6, he mentions that he was the bread of life that came down from heaven. Then he was crucified. His time on earth as manna for the people ceased. This time, however, after the manna was gone, an inheritance did not come in the form of land, it came in the same form that it was given to the Levites. It was an inheritance of the Lord himself, no longer to be carried on a bo- in a box on someone's shoulders, but now inside physical bodies. This inheritance was going to be available, and it was vast and far-reaching. It was, it was, it was an inheritance given in a radical manner. This kingdom inheritance had no boundaries This inheritance contained the breath of life, reviving those who just hours before, these disciples, who were surrounded by despair and darkness. Their experience can really inform us in our own challenging times. Submission to suffering, even death, with the hope and expectation of new life on the other side is a wonderful model for us. The question is, can we embrace this invitation of Jesus and the cross? That was so nicely summed up by German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer 
I bid you come and die. When each of us experiences suffering and darkness, our goal should be to trust the Lord and his long-term plan. To trust that resurrection and life will be offered in some form or another. Should we fail to trust and instead resist his transformative power, like the first generation of Israelites did, we will inevitably transmit pain and bitterness to those around us. So let me circle back now to Roar's uh, five lessons and, and reveal some beautiful truths that the Lord has wrapped within each one. So number one was life is hard. And yet Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Number two, you are not important. And yet Jesus said, rejoice because your name is written in heaven. Number three, your life is not about you. Rather, your life is hidden with Christ and God. Number four, you are not in control. For can any of you, for all your worrying, add a single moment to your span of life? And number five, you are going to die. And yet, neither life nor death, nothing can ever come between us and the love of God. I'm going to end with some thoughts from Roar that he just shared this past week um, that I think really address our situation today here in the spring of 2020. Jesus says, there is only one sign I'm going to give you, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Sooner or later, life is going to lead us, as it did Jesus, into the belly of the beast, into a situation that we can't fix, can't control, and can't explain or understand. That's where transformation most easily happens. That's when we're uniquely in the hands of God. Right now, it seems the whole world is in the belly of the beast together. But we are also safely held in the loving hands of God, even if we do not yet fully realize it. Will you pray with me? Father, we give you our fears, our worries, our needs, our challenges. We pray that we will hold still in the midst of the unrelenting storms and worries of life. May we hear your voice chanting, be not afraid, be not afraid, be not afraid. May we be willing to transform into your partners, dying to ourselves in order to be alive and engaged in your mysterious secret mission. May we each be able to say boldly, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. Amen.